You've got Twitter questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, Michael Brown here. As always on our Friday broadcast, you've got questions, we've got answers. But today, as we do uh, probably every few months, we're answering questions that were posted on Twitter. So I won't be taking calls today, won't be responding to breaking news, just answering Twitter questions today. So these have previously been posted, so don't post something now. I've already had the questions and I'm Asking, answering questions that were posted some days earlier. All right, Connie wanted to know if I was going on a book signing tour, pre-ordered the Jezebel book, but it wasn't signed. So anywhere where I'm speaking, if you go on my itinerary, ask Dr. Brown, org, and click on itinerary. If I'm speaking somewhere, uh, obviously I can't get to everybody in every setting, and sometimes I'm not available after service, but most of the time, when I'm out speaking, if someone comes with a book they'd like me to sign, I'm able to do it. So just check itinerary. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay. Michael wants to know, what is the traditional Jewish understanding of hell, its duration, who earns hell? Is there a type or similarity to purgatory in Jewish teachings? Now, Michael, within Judaism, you have liberal Judaism all the way over to ultra-Orthodox Judaism. Liberal Judaism being something that is more recent in its developments the last 200 plus years. And many liberal Jews don't even believe in life after death. When you're gone, you're gone, it's over. But traditional Judaism, if you go back to its earliest strands of belief, it did speak of an eternal hell. And this was certainly not the norm. But in, in one passage in the Talmud, it speaks about a perfectly righteous person that goes straight up. In other words, they die and they go immediately into God's heavenly presence. And then a completely wicked person who goes down and stays down. In other words, this person is so wicked that they go into a hell from which they never come up. But everybody else, they go down and they come up. And this is the basis for the view that hell punishment is refining, that hell punishment is paying for certain misdeeds and crimes and sins, but it's not forever. And after a certain period of time, then that person would, quote, go up or be liberated from that. So similar in a sense to a purgatory, similar, not identical, all right? But say in Catholicism, you pray for the dead and you can help speed their redemption out of purgatory. Forgive my imprecise terminology here. But in Judaism, you pray a daily prayer. It's called the mourner's Kaddish, Kaddish being a, a prayer of sanctification. But it is a prayer that just glorifies God. It is not praying for the dead. Uh, yes, you are doing it for a period of time in their memory, all right, or on the anniversary of their death, 
but it is it is not prayed in terms of oh god get them out of this place of suffering or anything like that they're not even mentioned in that regard so yes it's a clear prayer of redemption but not in that specific way so the concept would be that you could suffer for up to a year the idea of eternal hell is basically not taught in the in the vast majority of judaism today uh, because i guess no one is considered that wicked in any case, uh, the duration would be for one year. But since the vast majority of people are not going to be that bad, it's basically assumed everybody gets out after 11 months. Again, in overgeneralized terms. Okay, uh, Bruce, do you believe Yeshua is burning in hot excrement? What kind of question is that, buddy? I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. All right, and and the Talmud speaks of a Yeshu who is burning an excrement in hell. Is that the same Jesus? Is it somebody else? Many say, of course, that's just their hatred of Jesus. That's what they're talking about. Could well be. It's very possible that that's what the Talmud's speaking about. Others say, no, it's another Yeshu because there's so many different people by that name. Either way, that's what the Talmud says. I don't believe that. I reject that. I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I am a Messianic Jew. So I don't, I don't get the question. Sometimes Messianic Jews have problems with the word Christian. Are you a born-again Christian? It, it, Bruce, where in the world are you coming from, buddy? I mean, you post the questions publicly, so I'll answer candidly. Where in the world are you coming from? Yes, sometimes Messianic Jews have a problem with the word Christian because of what it means to many people, that it doesn't mean what it meant in the New Testament. It means follower of, say, Catholicism or follower of Greek Orthodoxy or someone who participated in the Crusades or the Inquisitions or, or, or just some, some name associated with religion and not with the Jesus of the Bible. That's why we identify as Messianic Jews to say we're still Jews and we're followers of Jesus. Am I a born-again Christian? Yes. Do I always identify as, as that? Only if it communicates, only if it has biblical meaning, if it means something else to somebody. For example, if I go to Israel and I say, Anino Tzri, that would mean I'm not a Jew, I'm a Catholic or a Greek Orthodox or something like that. If I say, Ani Yehudi Meshichi, I'm a Messianic Jew, that means I am a Jewish follower of Jesus, the Messiah. Lastly, is the Talmud all bad? No, it's not all bad. Absolutely not. It is millions of words. It is mainly complex legal discussion that will get you confused and bored within seconds. There are many beautiful traditions and beautiful interpretations in it, and then things I categorically reject in terms of the authority of the rabbis, and if the derogatory statements about Jesus in the Talmud are referring to Jesus of Nazareth, because sometimes the chronology is off by 100 or 200 years, you think it's, it's talking about the same person or not. If those statements are really about Jesus, then they're horrific and terrible and to be completely denounced. But wherever you're coming from, the nature of the questions honestly concerns me. Just being candid with you. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, okay. Old things pass away. Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my community. Is Jesus talking about Peter himself or what Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God? There is a healthy debate about that. Was Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter? You're, you're going to be a central figure, okay? Uh, and then those that follow after Peter become central figures, hence the papacy in Roman Catholicism. 
even if Jesus was saying what he was saying about Peter, even if he was, under no circumstances was he establishing a papal office there. Under no circumstances was he saying, oh, Peter, and your successor, and and the successor after that, and whoever is the bishop in Rome, because that's where you're going to end up being martyred, Rome, that, that, that those people are now the leaders of the church in perpetuity. No, 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 I categorically completely reject that. I know the Roman Catholic Church teaches it, and I categorically reject it. If I agreed with it, I'd be Roman Catholic. All right. So is it just talking about Peter as an individual would be a key leader in the church? Well, when we go in the book of Acts, we see he is a key leader, that he stands with the 11 in Acts 2, and he's the one who, who speaks, all right? We know he plays a key role. We also know Paul plays a key role. Peter's not heard of after Acts 15, and the rest of, of Acts focuses on the ministry of Paul. But then we know in Jerusalem that Jacob had the senior role and that there was a succession of leaders in Jerusalem who were Jewish uh, following after Jacob for some period of time. So even if Peter as an individual was going to play a key role, there's not an establishing of a papacy or anything like that. So, so yes, the name Peter is related to, to rock. So you're, you're a little rock. I'm going to build the, the, the Messianic community, the church on this rock. But I think it's better to say the rock of the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. What is the church built on? Is it built on Peter? No. Is it built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets? Yes, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Got that? So <clears throat> the, the church is built on him, all right? And then everybody builds accordingly. Then you have the fa- foundational levels of the apostles and prophets, but the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone is Jesus. So ultimately, the rock on which the church is built is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And even if there was a central role that Peter was to play, he was one of several central players, Paul being another, Jacob, James being another. We know that clearly. And there's not a stitch of evidence, not a stitch of New Testament evidence that everyone went to Peter to submit to Peter or that there was a succession and the next guy after Peter was now the, the bishop of Rome and therefore the pope of the church. In fact, you've got to go into the fourth and fifth centuries for these things to really come up as major issues. And then even then, you have no, you've got the bishop of Constantinople playing a major role and the bishop of Rome playing a major role. So you have two titulary heads in that regard. So with all respect to my Catholic friends, I categorically, from the heart, and from the mind, reject the idea that Jesus in any way was establishing papal supremacy in Matthew 16. You say, but doesn't Jesus tell Peter to feed his sheep in John 20, when, 21 when he restores him? Yeah. Doesn't say you're the pope or you're the shepherd of the whole church. You've denied me three times. I'm asking you three times, do you love me? And I'm restoring you. Hey, it's not over for you. You're still going to be a shepherd. All elders are supposed to feed the sheep. All elders are supposed to shepherd. You say, yeah, but but Luke 22, Jesus says that Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat, and when he's restored, because he's going to fall when he's restored, strengthen the brethren. Yeah. And what's that got to do with being the pope or the leader? And again, show me in, in the New Testament where everyone came to Peter. All right, Pope Peter, what do we do? No, Peter was one voice in Acts 15. And the one who is the senior leader there that rises up with the verdict 
for what to do with Gentile believers. Do they have to come under the Torah? Do they have to convert and become Jews in order to follow Jesus the Messiah? Who stands up as the senior leader? It is none other than Jacob, with Paul being one voice and with Peter being one voice. And even in Galatians 2, uh, Paul speaks of several different pillars, not just Peter, and, and then ultimately where he differed and even rebukes Peter publicly. And, and the Pope being called His Holiness, Peter in Acts 3, after the healing of the layman, says, don't look at us as if by our power or holiness this man was made whole. No, it's faith in the name of Jesus. So who's the head of the church? Jesus. What's the rock on which the church is built? The confession of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus himself is the rock on which the Messianic community is built. All right, I'm answering your Twitter questions today. Only Twitter questions. So don't call in. Don't post them now. Don't post on Facebook or YouTube because I'm only answering questions that were previously submitted on Twitter. And we got a bunch of fascinating ones to come. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Friday edition of The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. Have to fight the impulse to give out the phone number because I'm answering your Twitter questions today. By the way, if you've read any of my books and they've been a blessing to you and you haven't posted a review, post a review on Amazon. It's the most trafficked book website, and uh, every so often with controversial books that I write, which most of my books are controversial, we get people that hate us and bash us, and we'll just post bogus reviews. The reviews are really unrelated to the content of the book, or they're just so hate-filled that they'll attack, and and they'll put up a one-star review or something. It's just based on malice and things like that. And uh, and by the way, you know, if someone read the book and differed a little bit, not going to put up a one-star review. Most of those that I've seen over the years have been bogus, don't engage the content, or just plain nasty. All the more reason then that your positive reviews, and of course, by God's grace, our, our books are overwhelmingly reviewed positively, that those go a long way to sending a message. And I know when I'm going to, to buy something, I'm not familiar with it, and I just look, I see, okay, it's got three stars. I wonder why only three stars. Hmm. And then I'll read, you know, the best reviews and the worst reviews and try to come to a conclusion. You know, maybe it's some electronical gadget or something like that and or, or whatever or some book I'm looking into. And the same way, if I see oh, it's got all five stars or four and a half stars and hundreds of reviews, then, then that tells me something. So take a minute, post the review. It doesn't have to be long. Just what you appreciated about the book, be it the new Jezebel book or any of my other books that you've read. You don't have to, but wherever you buy it, that's fine. You don't have to buy it on Amazon, but be sure to post a review there. It's a great way to partner with us to get the message out. Okay. Uh, Learning Portal asks, can you share your thoughts on the proposed location of the temple in the old city of David instead of on Temple Mount, which is thought to be instead the site of Roman Fort Anatolia and implications for the third temple? I am not an expert on the subject. I'm not an expert on aspects of biblical geography in New Testament times. But according to everything I know, the location is where we understand it to be in terms of the Temple Mount. That the idea that the location of the ancient temple is somewhere else and therefore could potentially be rebuilt somewhere else is not accurate. According to everything I know, now, I, I have not studied this in sufficient depth 
where I have read all the dissenting views. But according to everything I know, according to my friends in Israel that have studied the, the geography and the history of the site, uh, according to others, uh, other scholars I've looked at, the traditional understanding of where the Temple Mount, uh, where the Temple stood, what is currently known as the, the Temple Mount and where the, the Dome of the Rock are and the nearby the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that that is the accurate location. And that's where if there's going to be a third temple, it would have to be built according to the best of my understanding. But I qualify that just to say I'm not an expert on it. Okay. Certain things I can say I've got real expertise here. This is not one of them. But I am not open to the other theories in terms of, wow, could it be just because I haven't seen sufficient evidence for it? All right. Um, George, the way I understand it, God is the beginning and the end. Does that mean he knows everything about the end? If so, why did he make so many he knew would not choose him? Yes, George, your understanding is correct. God inhabits eternity. God sees the future with as much accuracy as we see the past. He sees the future with perfect accuracy. Before he created the universe, before he created the human race, he knew exactly what would happen. He knew that we would sin, he knew what it would cost him to righteously redeem us. He knew what it would take to get a people who would serve him and follow him. And he created knowing all those things. Now, I differ with my Calvinist friends who said that he preordained the final results of who's saved and who is lost. But he certainly foreknew the final results of who is saved and who's lost before he created anything and where he would intervene in human history to produce certain desired results while still giving human beings free choice in the matter. So the, the long and short of it is this, that God saw that to have a people who would be created in his image and therefore have a moral understanding and therefore be able to love and hate and therefore be able to say yes or say no, that in order to do that, he had to have a scenario in which we could make bad choices, a scenario in which some would be saved and some would be lost. And without that scenario of people being able to choose good or choose evil, without that scenario, there would be no people who would freely love him and serve him forever. And this was something that he desired to create for our good and for his glory. So ultimately, people will end up where they choose to be, that those that have chosen to follow him by his grace and receive eternal life will be blessed for that, and those who have chosen to reject him will be judged for that. So ultimately, it is choices that we make, but without having a world in which we could make these choices with good and bad consequences, love would have been coerced, love would have been forced if you just basically create human beings that only say, I love you, I love you, I serve you, I serve you, it's basically like creating robots, and God did not do that. By the way, I'm not saying my Calvinist friends make God into the creator of robots. I understand their theology would be very different from that. I'm saying if you created the world in which human beings have no moral responsibility, no choice, no possibility of doing wrong, no possibility of evil rebellion, then you end up with, as C.S. Lewis said, automatons. Instead, God wanted an environment in which people could love him freely, and be part of his family. And he looked at the whole and said it is worth it overall. All right. Um, 
Larry, someone asked what Amen means. I remembered it meant truly in Hebrew, and after some research added surely to that. Two others tweeted that it derived from Amon Re, an Egyptian god, or Amon Ra. What's the story? Forget the derivation from Egypt. Forget it. Unrelated. In Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Arabic, you have the root Aleph Mem Nun. Amon, all right, which has to do with being steady, which has to do with being firm. It's also the root in Hebrew for believing. In a certain verbal form, it's used for believing, hence this, the steady confidence in God. And when you say amen, you're saying so be it. Yes, so surely, truly. That uh, we have, for example, the tree of life version where Jesus in, in our English translation say King James, verily, verily, instead is translated as amen, amen. All right, so unrelated to Egypt, unrelated to the deity in Egypt, forget that, all right, but related to this common Semitic word. So amen in Hebrew, amin in Arabic, amen in certain parts of America. Um, old things pass away. All right, I'm going to try not to answer two questions of any one person, but maybe I'm just doing that here. There's a connection between the meditation Isaac did when he met Rachel and the way power flowed through Jesus when he was healing people in Luke 16. Is there a connection? No connection. No. Forget, no, no connection. Zero. Joseph, in your opinion, do you believe in an old earth evolutionary theory or young earth creationist theory? Do you think believing evolution is inconsistent with the Bible? Thank you. I believe if you hold to macro evolution, the evolution from one species to another, human beings descendant from apes, then that is contrary to the Bible because God creates each species to reproduce after itself. Microevolution is consistent with the Bible, that there is development within the species, so that a certain species migrating to a certain part of the world and living there over a period of time have the ability to adapt and to grow in that particular environment. So microevolution, sure, there's no problem with believing in that. Macroevolution would be contrary to my understanding of what Scripture explicitly states. Do I hold to old earth creation or young earth creation based on scripture? I'm not dogmatic based on scripture. Now, please understand, I take stands all the time that are controversial. I take stands all the time that cause people to, to not support me. I take stands all the time that cause others to support me. And I don't take a stand for support or to lose support. I take a stand because I believe it's right and true and important in God's sight. All right. I'd be very happily dogmatic either way. But I could argue based on scripture for old earth or young earth. All right, and because I'm not a scientist, I leave that for the scientists to debate and decide. And you can attack me from either side. I'm just telling you my own position. And I've had old earth creationists on the air and young earth creationists on the air. You say, but you've had old earth creationists more. That's just because they reached out to me. The folks at Reasons to Believe have reached out to me. And, and I, I love Dr. Hugh Ross and the things that his ministry is doing there. So I've gladly had them on. But if young earth creationists reached out to me more, and, and the subjects were relevant, I'd gladly have them on, okay? And then maybe I could facilitate a debate one day. Um, Tammy, uh, let's see. I've recently found your podcast, and I'm greatly encouraged by your ministry. You make me think, and I love that. I am so glad to hear that. Wonderful. What are your thoughts concerning Christian leaders more and more involving themselves in the steadily rising social justice warrior movement in America? Okay, bad and good. The bad is that many are getting involved based on the spirit of the age. 
Many are getting involved based on the embracing of, of concepts like intersectionality and things like that. Many are getting involved based on accepting some of the premises of the social justice wars. And many of those are unbiblical or wrongheaded or historically inaccurate. All right. So that's the bad. And that deeply concerns me, especially when it starts to influence our theology. The good is that, that we should be pursuing justice. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5. Matthew 23, rebuking the hypocritical religious leaders. Okay, great. You tithe on the smallest things, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You, you should have focused on those and, and not neglected the other. So we should be a people of justice and righteousness. Romans 14, right, that the kingdom of God doesn't consist in eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We should be leading the way as salt of the earth and light of the, of the world. As Martin Luther King said, that we're not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. But let's not do it the world's way. Let's not do it in the spirit of the age. Let's do it with the wisdom of God. That's my concern. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. I'm answering Twitter questions. I had a stack. I may have to move quickly here. A bunch of great questions that have been posted on Twitter. Don't post them now because I already have all the questions that I'm answering. They have been previously posted. And don't call because I'm not taking calls today, and don't even ask me for my comment on any major news in the last 24 hours. Whatever's major, I'm writing about, so you'll find the articles at AskDrBrown.org, Stream.org, or wherever else read my articles. By the way, if you read my articles on TownHall.com, great conservative political website, great articles, great columnists there, Town Hall may post a third to a half of what I write. Because some of what I write is too spiritually oriented and, and the focus is a little bit different. But everything I write, you'll find on stream.org, you'll find on askdrbrown.org. The vast majority of what I write, you'll find on Christian Post, you'll find on Charisma News, you'll find on a number of other sites. All right. But if you only read me on Town Hall, you miss a bunch of the articles. All right. Troy has, Troy has, okay, two, I'll answer. He's got two questions back to back. If prophecy states that the Antichrist forms a seven-year peace treaty, then what would prevent him by knowing the prophecy from purposely changing it to say a four-year treaty in order to purposely discredit prophecy and word of God? Ah, if God's declared something, he's declared it based on his foreknowledge and declared it based on his will. So God is smart enough to outsmart the Antichrist, okay? And if the Antichrist is like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, show that this, and by the way, there's debate about the exact meaning of seven-year treaty and all, but let's just say it was there, okay? That that God can can put another thought in the mind of the Antichrist that, well, if he does this, then there'll be other implications. So it it, it ends up going the way that God has determined. If, if God says in writing it's going to happen, uh, either he foresees that's exactly what's going to happen or that he works to make sure that happens because that is something of critical importance in his plan. And it could be he raises up the right person to be the Antichrist and then sufficiently gives that person over to stubbornness and rebellion, gives them over to their own heart and their own ways where they end up making foolish decisions and they play right along with his plan. And then the other question, 
Psalm 110, Rabbi Singer says, the second usage of Lord is not translated right by Christians. It only means Adoni is only a human master. It refers to King David. How do you respond to that? Yeah, of course, responded to that ages ago, decades ago. Uh, number one, if you'll read in Psalm 110, in any in, in English translation, you'll see the Lord, capital L, then small caps, O-R-D, said to my Lord, even if it's capital L, it's small O-R-D. So it's two different words there in our English translation. Where you see all caps, that means Yahweh. All right, Lord, all caps, or sometimes God, all caps, that means Yahweh. When you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, but not all caps, it means Adon, all right, Adonai. There are other ways of saying Lord, all right? So our, our, our English Bibles do have it correct in the Psalms, where they have capital L-O-R-D, so Yahweh, Neum Yahweh la Adoni. So Yahweh said to my master, all right? The Lord, Yahweh, said to my master. Now, is it spoken of David? If it's spoken of David, then it would have been written by a court poet, and it was written of a court poet saying that the Lord, Yahweh, said to my master, David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, and you'll be a priest forever if the order of Melchizedek. So then David, who becomes a type of the Messiah, is a priestly king, all right? Or... It is David who writes it. It does say a Psalm of David. David who writes it to his master, the Messiah. And this is an argument Jesus uses. It was obviously an interpretation current in that day that it was a Psalm of David. So he's saying, hey, if the Messiah is just David's son, only David's son, how can David call him Lord, meaning master? So it is not speaking of his deity there, but of his being David's master and therefore greater than David. And yes, his deity, of course, is, is written in many other places, but that's not an explicit reference to deity there, but rather being greater than David. That's the point Jesus is making. Okay. And he is greater than David because he's deity. Let's see. Uh, the last echo. Many, and I mean thousands of Pentecostal churches, are distancing themselves from tongues and the spiritual gifts. Where on earth is the traditional pneumatology and the assemblies of God, Foursquare, Church of God, etc.? Uh, around the world, the Holy Spirit's being poured out mightily, and the fastest growing religious group in the world, and this has been for decades, it's not Islam, it's not atheism, it is Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. Around the world for decades, it's a fact. Uh, look into it, research it, you'll, you'll see it to be true. And this is where tongues are spoken, this is where people are healed, this is where demons are cast out. And this is part of the growth that the Holy Spirit is moving actively, powerfully, and people are experiencing it themselves. At the same time, you are 100% right. But many Pentecostal charismatic churches, especially in America, even in the West more broadly, have gone for a, a charismatic form of worship. What, what's that? What is that? What is that? Does it include the visitation of the Spirit, encountering the Holy Spirit? Does it include tongues and prophecy and healing of the sick? Now, I understand that if you have seven services on a weekend and you have to get the people in and out, that you can't just have every service be Holy Ghost, break out, whatever happens, happens. The nurseries will be chaos. The traffic will be chaos. The, you couldn't do anything, okay? But you should have a place where the gifts are expressed and manifest. I know some mega churches that at the end of every service, if people need prayer for healing or, or, or they, they, they need guidance, come up and you can get prayer. And then they have regular gatherings, monthly or other things to just worship and let the Holy Spirit move. And then they have house meetings where the Holy Spirit can move freely. But yes, 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 for years and years and years, we have leaned more on the arm of the flesh in so many ways. For years and years and years, we have 
we have done things and just just looking more to, to kind of be sophisticated. In my book, Playing with Holy Fire, a wake-up call of the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, I actually have, a, a, a uh, towards the end of the book, towards the end of the book, I say, okay, I've talked about excesses, extremes, problems, but the other problem is we just want to be wise like the world and not so Pentecostal Charismatic, which means that the very things that got us where we are and the empowering of the Spirit and the nearness of the Spirit and the manifestation of the gifts, the, the very things that help us get where we are are the very things that we're discarding. So it's a shame, and, and, and we must have a, a renewal and an awakening there. Otherwise, we will lose our distinctive in the Lord and, and the best distinctives of all. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, Rochelle, uh, Tammy, I love that you're listening to Dr. Michael Brown. He's a big favorite of mine. You love his books too. Hey, thanks, Rochelle. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, uh, Samuel, I love God's law, and I love to keep the biblical feasts and the Sabbath. If Jesus said that not one stroke of the pen would pass from the Torah and that we were to keep it and teach men do the same, why do most theologians teach that the feasts are not to be observed? He said nothing will pass away until it's fulfilled. That's why we don't follow the blood sacrifices, for example, because we have the ones for all blood sacrifice. That's why we don't physically go to Jerusalem to a physical temple because we have a spiritual temple and we can worship God anywhere in the world and we have become a spiritual temple individually and corporately. All right. That's why there's not a death penalty for adultery today, because we're not under the Sinai covenant. These things are now lived out differently. If someone committed adultery in the church and wouldn't repent, we don't put them to death. We excommunicate them. All right. So we're not under the Sinai covenant. We're under a new and better covenant. And, and the Gentile church was never under the Sinai covenant at any point. All right. The, the New Testament is writings are quite explicit on that. So, Samuel, I'm assuming you're a Gentile believer. You have, you're absolutely free to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath, absolutely free to observe the Feast and Holy Days, and to recognize their spiritual importance looking backwards and looking forwards. And you can look to 1 Corinthians 5 as, as an exhortation to do that very thing in terms of Passover. But you cannot judge others for not doing it, as Paul is quite explicit about in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. You cannot judge others for not doing those things. As he said, the, the Sabbath is only the shadow. The reality is found in the Messiah. So I believe it's important to recognize the prophetic meaning of the feast because the spring feasts point to his, his death and resurrection and giving of the spirit and the fall feasts speak to his return and the forgiveness of Israel and the ingathering of the nations. But to say everyone should be keeping them, I, I differ with that. Um, let's see. Neil, what should someone do to seek the joy of the Lord without making an emotional feeling an idol? I desire that joy, yet fear making the emotion in an, an idol in itself. First, don't fear it. Don't worry about that. Where does the Bible ever say, be careful, don't rejoice too much, be careful, don't make joy into an idol, don't, don't, don't have too much peace. So don't worry about it. Why worry about it? It's one thing if you try to work yourself up. Okay, I'm going to be joy, 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 joy. All right, happy, 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 happy. And you work yourself into a frenzy and start bouncing around the room. And no, that's just carnal flesh. It's got nothing to do with the joy of the Lord. That's emotionalism. But just rejoice, man. God's good. God's faithful. Even if you don't feel anything, praise him and shout to his name and, and dance for joy to the Lord because he's good. And, and, and then meditate on his promises and meditate on his goodness and reflect on the mercy he's had on you. And if there's worship music that in particular ignites something in you, go for it. There are some worship songs 
some praise songs that have for many years just ignited something in me where I just want to jump and shout and run around the room. And sometimes I do. I've done that more than once. And now in my 60s, I still do it avidly. That there are some songs that just that get me to a certain place of rejoicing. And, and then out of that comes deeper worship. Don't, don't fear making the thing into an idol. I, I believe that's a danger for you. All right. Um, Selecta. Please give a clear example from the Bible of a true believer who lost their salvation. Well, number one, I would point to all the warnings about the possibility of forfeiting our salvation, the possibility of walking away, the exhortation to continue until the end. All right? So I would, I would point to those first. I point out that 2 Peter 2 speaks of, of those who knew the Lord and turned away. It would have been better if they never knew him which should suggest that, that obviously their fate is dreadful because if they end up in heaven, then it was still better that they knew him, all right? But what about Damas in 2 Timothy 4? Damas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Could it be he forsook Paul and forsook the Lord? And, and what about others that Paul references in his letters to Timothy who've, who've shipwrecked the faith? Uh, were they once believers and now they've left? And, and what does Jesus mean in John 17 when he says, I, the, the only one I lost is Judas? Was Judas ever saved? I don't know about Judas. You could say he, he was always a son of perdition, always hellbound, and, and just an imposter. It says he was a thief elsewhere, wanted to take money. But Jesus says, I didn't lose anyone except him. So what does that mean? Uh, and then the history of Israel is a history of backsliding and falling away and whole generations where they're away from God. Uh, so you have individuals mentioned who could well be apostate. You have the warnings against apostasy. You have the history of Israel. So that's more than sufficient for me. That being said, I rest totally in the keeping power of God. I don't trust the keeping power of Mike Brown. I keep the trust the keeping power of the Lord Jesus and lean ultimately on him. And I'm at peace. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right. It's our last segment on this Friday broadcast answering your Twitter questions. By the way, do you know that once a week we do a YouTube chat where I just answer questions, post it live on YouTube, and spend about an hour every week? You say, well, I, I can't see him on YouTube. I, I, I'll go to see him because I, I, I missed the show. Ah, that's exclusive for our Patreon partners. So while the show is live, everybody can watch it live and post their questions. If you want to watch it afterwards, then that's, that's an exclusive for our Patreon supporters and our, and our torchbearers, our, our monthly supporters. All right. So we also do a special teaching each week, a bonus video. Right now, I'm going through the book of Hebrews. How cool is that? One new video each week to take advantage of these, just literally pennies a day, 30 something cents a day, okay? You can become a Patreon supporter, $10 or more per month. And not only do you help us put out more cutting edge video, and trust me, we are overflowing with vision of the things we want to do and produce and get out. Not only that, but also, also, we are, well, you're, you're standing with us. You're on the front lines of getting the re reward. 
and heavenly rewards, souls touch, lives change, and you get two bonus videos a week, the YouTube chat and a special teaching. So would you do that? Would you join us? Patreon support at patreon.com forward slash ASKDR Brown. Patreon.com forward slash ASKDR Brown. Okay, Chad, is there a rapture or not? I believe there's only a second coming. Jesus never brought up a rapture. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the rapture is part of the second coming. And Craig Keener and I, Professor Keener and I, in the book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, we, we go into that in depth. Okay? So, so yes, that's the fact that Jesus will appear in glory, will be caught up to meet him, and descend together with him. So rapture and the second coming take place at one and the same event. Uh, Musi. Why is the church in America still divided by racist black and white churches? I'm a Christian originally from Africa, and this bothers me so much. Aren't we supposed to be an example of peace, love, and harmony? I want to give you a positive and a negative here. First, the negative. Yes, we're divided. Yes, we're much too divided. Yes, we often don't work together adequately. Yes, we often get caught up in denominations, denominational differences, and race differences, and color differences, and theology differences, and rather than majoring on what joins us together and majoring on our unity in Jesus, we end up divided as, as if we're not even part of the same family. That's negative. Here's the positive. If we can recognize ourselves as one body, if we work together in the city across racial and ethnic lines, then it's really not a problem if a Korean congregation has a certain style and they intersperse Korean and a black congregation has a certain style and a Hispanic congregation has a certain style and a white congregation has a certain style and a Messianic Jewish congregation has a certain style and whatever different groups there are that we, when we worship together or maybe in our community, our community is a, is a, is a largely Asian community or largely Hispanic community or largely black community. You know, we don't have to bust people in right, so that we can have an integrated church. Wherever you can, it's wonderful. Uh, some of my friends are very intentionally multicultural pastors in their congregations. They'll have like 50, 100 different nations in them if they're in a city that's got people from around the world. And it's amazing to see. And the worship reflects a wide variety of styles. But if in a given community, the churches are largely black and largely white and, and largely Hispanic and largely Asian and largely Messianic Jews, wherever they are, okay? And, and they stand together for pro-life or they pray, the leaders meet together monthly and pray. That's great. That's fine. In other words, you can have unity with diversity. You can have unity with all kinds of distinctives and differences. But when we put up walls and when we see that's the black church, that's the white church, that's the Hispanic church. That's the Asian church. We, we put up walls of separation. That's a big problem. And it just means that we have to be more the, uh, Jesus-like, more following Jesus, more following his example, more Christ-like, and less culturally bound. But to have different assemblies that honor one another, participate together for larger purposes, but, but gather together with certain racial, ethnic distinctives, that's not necessarily worse than having, having restaurants that, you know, are... are racially or excuse me ethnically oriented restaurants i don't think you have a race oriented restaurant like this is white food versus black food right but but you you may have this hispanic and this is asian and this is european and and so on right this is middle eastern okay um lydia here in bolivia many churches are very legalistic is it wrong to have a plain wooden cross in a christian church not a crucifix 
The cross is a reminder of the victory Jesus won for us. It's not an idol, Lord. We worship it. Thank you for your reply. In my view, it's absolutely fine to have one. I, I don't like a crucifix. I don't like the image of Jesus hanging on the cross. Again, another difference I have with, with Catholic friends. But just the cross, I think it's great. It's a reminder. There's nothing idolatrous about it. They're, we're not worshiping it. We're not bowing down to it. We don't go and pray at the foot of the, the cross as if it's a sacred thing. But it's a reminder of the death of Jesus and that he's not on the cross, that he's not in the grave, that he's risen. Great. Now, if you're a Messianic Jewish congregation, you won't have one. Why? Because in the Jewish world, it's a negative symbol. It, it speaks of persecution. It speaks of crusades, inquisitions. It speaks of triumph over, over people. It does not speak of, of the sacrifice of Jesus. But where it's appropriate, fine. Now, having said that, having said that, if, if, if there is a, a setting where people have a problem with it, then don't fight over it. Don't fight over it. Do what you do in the privacy of your home and don't fight over it. Okay. Um, Donnie, can you share your views on why we have so many variations of the gospel concerning the events at the tomb when Jesus resurrected? Yeah, I can. It's because you have numerous eyewitness reports with numerous perspectives. And as Augustine said, you basically have a, a clear internal harmony. I don't think that was his exact word. But, but you, the overall story is overwhelmingly telling you the same thing, and the variations are ultimately minor. Now, they may be a little difficult to fully reconcile every single one of them, but the great bulk easily reconcilable. And J. Warner Wallace, so he became famous before becoming a famous apologist as a cold case detective. All right, so here he is working in the police force, and he, he goes back. Here's a case 20 years old that was never cracked. So he goes back and revisits the evidence. It's a cold case. It's done. It's, it's put aside. He revisits the evidence and, and puts things together and finds the, the person responsible. They thought they'd gotten away with murder, literally. So he was a detective. He was used to, to talking to people in private. Okay, I got your testimony. Now get this testimony, that. And based on his reading of the New Testament as a cold case detective, he said, it's exactly what you'd expect to see from my witnesses. That if they all, all told the exact same story the exact same way, you'd know something's fishy. They memorized it. They rehearsed it. He said, the variations and the fact that it's, God, I can't quite reconcile these two, but they're telling the same overall story. He said, that's, that's the kind of evidence that you look for. And that helped him believe in the veracity of the gospel. This is not double talk. This, this is legal analysis. This is forensic analysis. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen reports of an accident from someone was looking down from their apartment. Someone was just coming out a door of a convenience store. Someone was in one of the vehicles. Someone was walking across the street. Someone else was down the road and saw it. And, and they're all telling the same story. But you look at it, it's like, but they've got major contradictions. And when we get the bigger picture, that's like, ah, then it all makes sense. Um, let's see here. All right. Um, Landa, Dr. Brown, could you please talk about the heretical teaching and apostasy we see at this time? I'm concerned over those who have great influence. Okay, I am missing that. And Kai, I don't have a screen in front of me, so I here we go. There we are. All right. I'm concerned over those who have great influence in the body of Christ that are teaching others how to be offended 
those that have shockingly become a cloud without rain. Okay, Land, it's, it's a broad question, and I wish we were on the phone so I could find out in more detail what you actually mean. But those who are teaching others how to be offended. All right, I, I, I'm going to answer what I think you're asking, which is somehow that I have a right to be offended if I'm treated a certain way. Or, or that I should take exception to this or this or this or claim certain status. If, if I'm not answering your question, I apologize, but I can only answer based on what was tweeted out. Let me just say this. We must teach others to forgive. We must teach others to be quick to overlook an offense. We must teach others not to be thin-skinned. There are things that we bring to attention, say this is unrighteous, this is wrong. But on a personal level, it's important that we are quick to forgive, that we do not walk in bitterness. As John Bevere wrote, that the bitterness is the, the bait of Satan, his classic book from years ago, and that we are not easily offendable. Uh, I was talking to Nancy the other day about a clip of a, of a well-known guy on TV that was insulted, and he flips out screaming at the guy using all kinds of profanity in the presence of his daughter. And she was saying, even though if it was a racial slur, which I don't know if it was, it's not my, my culture. He said, even if it was, you, you overlook it. But often we can be so thin-skinned. We've all been there. It, it, it is, read Proverbs. It is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. So the higher we can step, the better. Now, I will call people to account for wrong speech, for bearing false witness, and say, hey, why don't you do that? That's wrong. To try to help them step higher. But on a personal level, let's be people who bless Let's be people who walk in love. My early days in the Lord, for many a month, many, many, many a month, I prayed 1 Corinthians 13 over myself every day. If I walk in love today, that's a big part of it. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us. Go to AskDrBrown.org. Check out the latest resources.